Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. If this is your first time joining us, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots organization. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, educators, and our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. So how do we do that? Well, this podcast is one of those ways. And also, we send out a weekly newsletter highlighting articles we found that really relate to diversity, specifically um, in children's media. Sometimes we go a little bit outside of that if we really love the topic. And um, the point of this podcast paired with the newsletter is really to entice you to go check out the newsletter. We talk about those articles, one or two, on this podcast and we also invite people from the children's industry to discuss their work and this week I was really excited to welcome Carissa Kluver who is the editor of digitalstorytime.com as well as the digital media diet so she's coming up in a bit but first we'll start with our first article we're talking about one article this week um it's a fantastic piece in our newsletter. Um, it's from the New York Times Magazine by Nicole Hannah-Jones, and it's called Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City. And um, she goes through, there was actually, she did a piece on this. She won a Peabody on this um, topic specifically. When she did a piece in This American Life. Um, if you can listen to that podcast, I'll post it in the show notes. But what what she talks about is it's a very personal story um, that talks about her choice. She lives in, in Brooklyn with her husband, and it was time for her daughter to go to public school, to go to school. Um, and, you know, she, she basically goes through the choices that she had in front of her. And um, she talks about both her and her husband being bussed um, from what was basically considered the bad school where, where um, they, they grew up, which was predominantly um, African-American, to uh, the white school when, and this was you know, when she was growing up. And so um, she really struggled with which school to choose. The, t- the two schools or the schools that she had choices of were you know, a, a predominantly white school and, and then another school, PS307, um, which was predominantly African-American and Latino. One thing that I did not know, I, I live in New York. Um, I have a son. He's not, um, he's not going to kindergarten yet, but it's certainly something that um, my wife and I have talked about. And one of the things that really struck me, which I didn't know, was that only 15% of the 1 million public school students in New York City are white. And half of them, so half a million kids, are clustered in just 11% of the schools. And obviously those are some, you know, not coincidentally are one of the top, um, the city's top performing schools. So she goes through many of the statistics, which I, I'm sure we've, many of us have heard, the academic achievement gap for black children increased as they spent time in segregated schools. And really that's the whole point of this piece. This was also the point of her um, This American Life piece. and. Um, you know, PS three zero seven is um, is a pretty good school. Their their test scores are are not the best, but um, you know the, they had a very strong principal. She talks about the principal in 
in the piece, but she also goes through and sort of talks about the um, the progress that we were making in desegregating schools throughout the, you know, went from the point that um, the ruling came down to, um, to desegregate schools to about the 80s, we were making huge progress. Um, one of the stats she talks about was by 1973, 91% of black children in the former Confederate and border states attended school with white children. So that, um, you know, we, we were making progress towards it. And what happened as a result was the difference in black and white reading scores fell to half what it was. Um, and as schools have since resegregated. So basically what happened was, um, you know, we were making progress. And then, um, you know, some of the administrations in the 80s eliminated federal dollars, earmarked to help desegregation. And so, and we ended hundreds of school desegregation court orders. So, you know, this was just like we were on the cusp of basically making huge strides, you know, huge goals um, in, in huge progress. And what happened as a result was we, we've sort of fallen back to where black children are more segregated than they have been at any point in nearly half a century. So this piece, you know, like I said, it starts at, at a very personal level. She's trying to choose a school. Her and her husband are trying to choose a school for her daughter. And, you know, she struggles with this choice of, of um, you know, should I send my child to predominantly white school and basically get the benefits that I know that I got and that my husband got when I was going to school? Or do I make a choice to send her to a lower performing school with the understanding that, you know, I'm not going to turn my back on a system that is failing. And so she, she chooses to send her to a, a school that is um, predominantly African-American and Latino. And um, then sort of the story widens, like I said, into this history of, of what, um, how this came to be. And the progress that we were making has suddenly turned, is not suddenly, it's basically turned back. And... Um, you know, the, the, a lot of this goes back to sort of the housing policies that were put in place by the federal government. And she talks um, about specifically, you know, there were, after World War II, we created a lot of housing for veterans. And then those um, veterans housing, you know, the GIs moved out to the suburbs because they got... Um, they got federal loans from the government, and those loans were not available to black families. And the typical white person has 13 times the wealth of a typical black person, and studies have shown that this huge wealth gap can be traced back to housing policies, and housing policies directly affect schools. And so it was just, uh, it, it's really an amazing story because it also talks about the school right next door to them, PS8, used to be sort of the school that PS307 um, was. This school that was uh, high poverty, majority African American, majority or majority African American and Latino, and then sort of more and more white families started to move into the area, and 
the families that had been there first or the students that had been there first, basically it turned into a majority white school. And so, um, you know, the, the same thing starts to happen as she's sort of writing the story. There's an ongoing um, debate about PS 307 and how um, there's an overflow in PS 8 and some of these uh, predominantly white family, uh, white this predominantly white school will now have an overflow that have to go to 307, sort of these families that specifically bought in this area because they wanted to send their kid to PS8 are just overwhelmed and they can't believe this. And so there's um, these school um, sort of debates that go on and, and discussions about it. And one of the things she said, so I'm just trying to find it in my notes, was that, um, you know, when this discussion came up, they managed to um, get so this is a this this PS eight specifically this discussion about overflow children. This was fifty kids they were talking about in a system of more than one million. They had managed to get a state senator, a state assemblywoman, a city council member, the city comptroller, and the staff members of several other elected officials to this meeting that was that was talking about overcrowding at one school that was going to affect 50 kids. And so, um, you know, that's a clear case of sort of where power um, sits. And so um, it it was just, it's a super fascinating article, and I'm not going to tell you what happens in sort of the, how the council votes between these two schools and, and how things happen. You should definitely read it. Sit down, find, you know, 25 minutes to to sit and read through it. Um, I'm, if you're a parent, I'm sure a lot of this, if, if you're a parent in the city, I'm, I'm sure you, um, you can relate big time. But even if you're not, I think it's just natural when you're making a decision about your child. They say more than once in there that, you know, the, the, uh, the writer and her, and her husband sort of had this discussion, like our child is not an experiment. And um, you're weighing these sort of two things of, uh, does it feel like you're turning your back on on a system that's failing and ha- how you should you should handle that? So check it out. It's in our newsletter. Um, it's the first link. It's a fantastic story um, and and really well done. Like I said, I will put the link to um, to the this American Life podcast um, um, story as well, where where she does a great job of talking about the history of of segregate desegregation and then um, sort of resegregation. All right, let's get to our interview. All right, folks, our guest today is Carissa Kluver. She is the editor of digitalstorytime.com, an iPad's children's book review site, as well as the creator of The Digital Media Diet, a blog about kidlit, app development, parenting, and technology. Carissa, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So the the reason I wanted to reach out to you um, was I got a chance to I, I've obviously followed your website digitalstorytime.com when I was creating my own um, digital story, but um, you know you just recently published the piece have children's apps lost their luster, which was sort of a an overview of sort of where things stand with with digital books and and apps in general. So you've been at this for a really really long time. How long have you been reviewing apps, would you say? Well, I started reviewing iPad apps in 2010. So um, when they first years. 
Yeah, and when they first began. It sure. doesn't feel like an enormous amount of time, but it is the entire lifespan of the iPad. So right, I guess right. it is. <laughs> yeah, I guess now looking back, yeah, the iPad launched, that's right, in 2010. So you mentioned the piece you've reviewed over a thousand book apps, right? That's correct. Um, my husband is an app developer. Okay. Uh, he's not in the ed tech space at all. Sure. Uh, he works for a company that builds um, GPS for bicycles. So <laughs> totally, uh, totally different. But it's I understand from working with him as he built my website from scratch as a database uh -huh. so that it's very searchable and sortable, um, primarily right. aimed at teachers and librarians mm -hmm. who are looking for very specific books about different topics. And yeah. um, one of the requests I get very often uh, from librarians is looking for more diversity in apps. And so that's right. something that I've thought about a lot. Right. And uh, folks, if you haven't gotten to see the digital-storytime.com website, you should definitely check it out. Um, as Krista mentioned, it's super searchable. It has great categories across it. And um, like you mentioned, it's data database driven. So it's obvious that you can add more categories as um, as you see fit. And you've created a, a separate um, diversity um, category, correct? That's right. Um, diversity and multicultural stories is one right. of our categories. We also have a couple other categories like Latino stories or African-American stories. Um, there aren't as many in those um, lists as I'd like. Um, sure. I did a quick search of my own site. Uh, it's something I like to do. <laughs> and um, the word African, for instance, brings up more stories about African animals than it does right. about people. So sure. um, there is there are some real challenges. Right, right. I think even, um, I think I remember when this question came up about, like, as the We Need Diverse Books movement was growing, there was, um, I think there was some question about, like, are the main characters in kids' books animals anyway? And um, really, that was found to be um, not true. That it was it was a case where um, that most books had had a character in it. That character tended to um, tended to be white. But going back to your piece, how to have children's apps lost their luster? One of the things that you you mentioned on there was sort of um, there's there's still fertile ground to to cover, despite sort of the iPad. Um, being a mature product and and there being you know billions of apps out there, there's still um, there's still fertile ground. Where do you think that fertile ground exists um, right now? Well, I think it exists in a few places. Um, one of them is definitely there's still room for more diverse stories mm -hmm. in the general marketplace. So for startups, uh, especially those who have uh, clear goals and some sort of funding stream, uh, whether it be Kickstarter or a grant from a cultural institution, sure. for instance. Um, with that, there is enormous uh, need for more books that have diverse um, diverse children in them so yeah. that children see themselves represented in the literature they're reading. Right, right, for sure. Uh, my question um, for you is like when you, I, I went to a conference probably a month and a half ago or two months ago and um, they, t you know, it was it was put on by a group of publishers, uh, book publishers, and they were talking about how, you know, digital books are have sort of 
started to, to flatten out, sales have started to flatten out, and it seems like print is um, is somewhat coming back, or at least not falling as, as much as they would have. And the, the, um, the discussion was around digital books or kids... Um, kids prefer print books to to digital books and the feeling I got was that um, that was true up to the point of sort of an app that that has interactivity or an app that sort of does more than um, than simply just you know reflects an, an ebook would um, would certainly be more appealing to a kid the question I had for you is you mentioned that sort of e- that apps used to fall into these like digital pop-up books, but you don't actually feel that's that's what they are, correct? No, I, I think that when apps were first brought into the marketplace, we right. had uh, boxes, um, silos perhaps, that we felt things needed to be sorted into. Um, and I fell into that category myself as much as anyone starting a site that was very specific about uh, digital books. Right. Um, however, I've expanded a lot to look at that more as storytelling in general yeah. on a digital level. And um, we see uh, we see so many more opportunities for children, for instance, to become their own storytellers when there isn't a representation about their own situation, or even when they just want to be their own authors of their own um, their own narratives. We see that a lot. Yeah, um, I did kind of chuckle at the idea that um, digital is dead and print <laughs> is coming back. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's a wonderful post just uh, just yesterday from Jane Friedman, who's a publishing guru, called uh-huh. "The Myth About Print Coming Back and Bookstores yeah, on the I Rise." Saw it. Yeah. yeah, and I think that was a wonderful analysis. Um, while I absolutely agree that things are coming into a balance mm-hmm. and the market is maturing. I think that it's going to take a long time for digital and print to sort themselves out and figure out which format is the best tool. And that's what I see most happening in the ed tech space is it's about using technology as a tool, not technology for its own sake. And I think as we do that and as schools do that, they're discovering that kids as makers and those maker spaces are so powerful and open-ended storytelling apps are becoming more popular um, as well. And they fill in a lot of the gaps. And, well, there are a lot of gaps. Sure, sure. No, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's moving towards, you sort of, you touched on sort of this hybrid apps idea, but I think it's sort of moving towards this idea of um, what you're using the technology for. And I think that open-ended piece is also super appealing to, to children. I think for developers, um, it's, it it, crea- it creates something that's even more challenging and sort of raises the bar a little bit even higher. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that goes back to sort of how you mentioned that there there's a possibility to sort of um, to create there's there's fertile ground that exists out there, but you like you said you have to have a a funding stream and you sort of have to have some way of um, of developing a beautiful app and then also being able to to market it. And I think when you mm-hmm. combine that with sort of um, the expectations of, of a kid now in 2016, what they expect out of an app is sort of the ability to control the story or sort of tell tell their own story that creates even more, I, I don't know, I guess that's a question, do you feel like it creates even more challenges for sort of an independent developer? 
Well, I think for independent developers first entering the market in 2010 or 2011, sure. for instance, there the space was so wide open that um, you could get away with poor production quality or yeah. experience in the app that was less than seamless. Sure. Uh, what I'm finding now is, and it, it's reasonable, that we would want to have the highest production quality for apps about diverse characters right. as we would want for apps that are about um, less diverse <laughs> characters yeah. that we may yeah. see in traditional literature. It's, it's just so important um, these days that if an app is going to have any success at all, um, and that may not be monetary success, but simply eyeballs yeah. um, placed on it and actually get out there and impact lots of kids, is it does have to have um, good, good production quality, and that, that can be a challenge. Sure. Another challenge that I find is um, a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking as independent developers about launching an app. Mm -hmm. But maintaining an app is actually one of the bigger challenges, I right. find. Yeah, you uh, actually mentioned that in there, sort of lifespan, lifespan of apps. Yeah, um, I, I have some real favorites that um, sh showcase diverse characters that are no longer available in the App Store. Right. And I don't know the story behind each of those apps um, in particular, but I do know that there's sort of a theme or a thread that runs through it around the cost of development and being able to maintain that development every time there's a major update to your operating system on whichever format um, you're reading your device sure. um, choice. Every time there's a major update, there are production costs in right. putting the app back out there. And I think that that long-range planning for apps is, we're not quite there because, like you said, I've been doing this forever, but forever is only six years. <laughs> no, I, I think um, there it, there's a lot of truth to that, and I think it's it's super challenging for um, an, ind an independent developer to sort of... Um, you know, I've I've actually heard it the other way, where they have to make a case of sort of where do we stop, um, stop. Uh, I guess our app doesn't work on sort of an OS that's older, um, right. Than than some date, and I think that also sort of plays into this diversity, um, diversity question. You know, if if you are looking at the lens of sort of socioeconomic diversity, um, if you have a case where. Um, you know, someone is not updating their device sort of consistently, then um, if you have an older iPhone or even older Android, um, there's a possibility that the app just won't um, just won't work. And I think um, a developer is also sort of faced with the challenge of, of balancing the experience you want to have, right? If you have an app that you want to have a wonderful user experience, I'm sure every developer wants that. If you're on an older device, you know, you're faced with the possibility that, um, of making the choice of okay, my is my app going to run a little bit slower, or is the experience going to be a little bit um, more challenging? Because, but I do want to offer it um, to someone who may have not updated their device. So, um, so yeah, I think the app rot question, as you um, as you talk about in the piece, is is sort of something that has to be grappled with. When you, what I don't know how often you sort of visit the app store, but. Um, if you if you were sort of the benevolent dictator for the day, um, is there something that you would you would do about the app store to um, a make it more search friendly and b sort of 
find a way to to bubble the the diverse or multicultural themes up to, up to the top yeah you know i I spend a fair amount of time in the app store, not sure. every day these days, um, although uh-huh. it used to be at least every day, if not multiple <laughs> times a day. Um, and I have an older iPad, an iPad 2, um, as well as an iPad Air. Uh-huh. So I like to compare sort of what the experience, the experience is like. And what yeah. I found is and a lot of schools and libraries have iPad 2s. They right. were produced for longer than any other iPad. And as a result, that's a lot of the user experience that people are having. Yeah. And it, it's it's just this is nothing to do with diversity it's just slow it's so yeah. slow that um, that I frequently will download something from a different tablet from the iPad Air and mm-hmm. have a setting that makes it download to my other devices because right. I, I simply can't get into the app store and get anything done huh. but I, I would love to see them um, highlight more diverse apps but not just in a category that's right. called diversity yeah, <laughs> to, I agree. to highlight them as the best new apps that are right. coming out, um, and there there have been some really remarkable ones. Um, one of my favorites um, that is is more subtle is um, the Electric Company has a party game uh, that's uh, called the Electric Company Party Pranksters, and cool. the characters just happen to be diverse that you right. play with. Right. In the in the game, it doesn't highlight itself as a diversity app. It yeah. simply is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I I think those I completely agree with you. I think we're moving towards that um, paradigm where it's a reflection of sort of the world we live in, and you're sort of you're not telling the story um, specifically because of someone's race or gender or some other diversity lens. It's just they happen to look like you know how the world looks, and so. Um, and the world is a diverse place, but um, we'll definitely link to that to that um, to that app. That's very cool. Yeah, and um, it's free. It's a okay. f- free PBS app. Awesome. Um, so, have you seen uh, since you started doing this in 2010 to to now? Have you seen more parents or librarians sort of coming to you um, to say like, "Listen, I'm you know whether it's librarians who are coming you're saying, I, you know, my patrons are asking me for more." diverse apps or parents coming to you directly do you do you find that's more than than when you started um you know uh, it it definitely has increased um i don't get as many direct requests from parents um anymore but i most requests from parents had to do with the reading level of their child Uh and reluctant or struggling readers Um, So I haven't gotten as many questions from parents, but librarians and teachers in particular have been doing a lot more themed story story times around diversity issues. And so I do find that they really, there's a lot of demand from librarians in particular uh, that that the we need diverse books uh, hashtag is definitely a librarian initiated (laughs) movement. And I find that they tend to be the best curators of this content and, yeah. and real champions of it. And For those sure. questions um, from them increased so dramatically uh, that I began to really look at my own collection of over a thousand apps yeah. that I've reviewed and tried to think more carefully about what my criteria is in choosing apps. And I added that as a criteria for whether or not I would consider reviewing apps because I recognized that, you know, without really realizing it, my 
collection had not skewed towards more diverse apps. Sure. Um, and sure. then I, no, I have that's to awesome. dig, dig a little deeper, right. I think, to find those, those storybooks. And I think that's probably the biggest problem in the market is there's so much of it. Yeah. Is, is it, it's such a vast um, number of apps that are available in the marketplace, um, thousands of them being released every day, and certainly hundreds being released in the book category, is simply trudging through all the content to find those gems. Um, and sure. so PR and a PR budget is also the thing independent developers <laughs> look at, is just to yeah. get that, that word out there. But um, diversity has become a much, uh, a much more valued criteria uh, sure. in the last couple of years. No, I, I think you're right. The, the, the market itself is so saturated that I think um, parents themselves are sort of um, challenged by even sort of looking to find an expert and sort of the app store is not necessarily um, a great way to do that. Obviously, your website is a is a fantastic way to do that. And then, um, you know, the there are a network of, of websites that sort of try um, try to handle this. But um, yeah, there's just there's just an overload of of um, apps and then being able to find ones that are specific to um, diversity creates an even even different sort of challenge um, so when when you look back or I, I guess um, wh when you think about your ideal um, storybook app is there is there something that you um, you feel definitely works or something you would like to see in the in the next generation of, of apps well I see a lot of apps that are becoming more of a hybrid um, mm -hmm. of book and game and interactivity is woven in. And I'm a little bit ambivalent about it. I think that sometimes we are eager to do so much in an app because we can. Yeah. And what I'm really looking for is those just knockout phenomenal stories the story itself, just right. really spectacular stories that drive the app. Um, just like a really good story should drive a print book, not whether yeah. or not you can bind it in a fancy way or <laughs> sure. add a lot of incredible pop-up features. Right. I, I right. think we're, we're still, um, you know, I think the market's still very young uh -huh. and that we're still a little bit in love with the technology itself. And so one of the things I really look for is... Um, is a really good story, and then um, second to that, and a cl very close second is is really beautiful artwork. Yeah, uh, we love that in picture books, and I don't see any reason that digital picture books should be any different. Any different, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. so those are those are the things I really look for in a good storybook. Yeah, and. I, I think that people underestimate, I know your, your title is Diversity in Apps, but I think people underestimate the value in creating something in the iBook store or mm -hmm. um, other digital offerings that are available through the Kindle bookstore sure. or, other, or other sources where you can, for a lot less uh, development cost, mm -hmm. um, get a beautiful storybook without a lot of bells and whistles. Yeah, uh, out yeah. into the marketplace, and it's also proof of concept for an app <laughs> as sure. well. No, that's a great point. I think um, when I was sort of um, starting my app, uh, you know, we launched our app, and then um, you know there was 
I I always go back and sort of look at the iBooks and look at the Kindle and and try to figure out if there's a way if there would have been a way to to sort of do it um do it that way. I think there's an opportunity, but I think like you're saying there's sort of a a sexiness to an app in but that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that um it makes sense that or that's where you should launch. But to go back to what you said earlier, I completely agree with you on the story. I think story wins. It always wins um if you if you tell a great story. Um you know the kid is is going to be engaged and I mean anyone is going to be engaged when you tell a great story so um that makes a lot of sense the the other piece that I wanted to touch on is um something you had sent me um that really was a great collection of it was part of your training documents but um that you had presented um some time ago but it was a collection of really places to find um diverse apps to find multicultural books and um, so, how how did you manage to put the, together that list? Because that was um, that was quite uh, extensive. Well, we have actually five different um, training documents like this, and uh, oh, wow. this was all state uh, funded by the state of California. Um, did a big grant where we did a pilot project in um, Rancho Cucamonga at their library, their phenomenal library, uh-huh. and. In that process, we got funding to work on a number of documents, including this one about diversity, which you're welcome to link to. Yeah, um, I, I would I yeah, appreciate and it. We'd love to. We did one on special needs apps, which I think is another element of diversity that's important. Absolutely. Um, and in the process of doing our research in order to train librarians in how to conduct a digital story time, we really considered diversity as one of our, our main, we had four different um, workshop segments on our second day mm-hmm. that highlighted different uh, sort of slices of the pie of the app world and diversity yeah. was a really important one and there was a real demand for it within the library system uh, to to do that but yeah that's how we created it and uh, my my colleague Ken Campbell I can't say enough about how wonderful she was to work with um, uh-huh. she helped a lot in um, in translating what librarians really needed to know in ways that I could then as someone more involved in the app world, really translate into useful resources for librarians. Sure. Maybe even to just have as handy sort of cheat sheets when they needed, you know, got a question at the desk about something that they right. would have real resources to offer to their patrons. Right. So I have two questions about this. When um, one is when you sort of presented um, diversity as a priority or sort of as a piece of the criteria when doing digital story time did you um, did you get pushback was there a questioning of you know why is this a, a part of um, a part of it or was it a case where librarians you know, recognized the need oh librarians embraced it um, mm-hmm. probably even more so than I was able to initially because I had to dig so deep in sure, the market sure. to find the apps that that they really wanted to see. Um, the library world is so concerned about meeting the needs of a diverse population, sure, and they think sure. about diversity in the broadest sense possible, right, right, um, right. from age and ability, um, sexual orientation, um, skin color is among a, just a wide variety right, of right. The diversity that they look at. And I found that they 
understood really well that each of our segments talked about these things should be woven into a thread within every collection that you you present. Yeah, so yeah. every story time, whether it's about emotions, um, about uh, the first day of school, what, whatever the theme of that story time at the library should include diverse characters um, in ability right. and uh, diverse cultures. Yeah. In addition to specific story times, uh, and as that might include diverse languages. There's some great, um, in particular, Spanish English language books that um, that are really useful. Yeah, that that's fantastic. You know, sometimes when um, when I do this podcast, um, I'm usually talking about an article that you know talks about how we're failing at at diversity, or talks about how the needle might not be moving, or a researcher might come on and and give me some depressing stats, but. Um, <laughs> hearing you talk about how librarians have embraced it and sort of understand the need for it and then even moving the conversation beyond um you know diversity for for the sake of diversity meaning you're telling a story that is specific to the diversity rather than the character itself is not defined by um by their diversity and so um, that's just, uh, it just makes me really happy. Um, I like to have these <laughs> conversations, not that the other ones aren't important for us to know yeah. where to, to work on stuff, but, um, that's, that's really awesome, um, to hear. And, and I'll, I'll really, um, look forward to, to, to sharing the training documents when, um, if, if you were, if someone was coming to you and said, listen, I, um, I recognize that there's a need for diversity in sort of the kids um, media industry, whether it's uh, you know it's a it's a movie or it's a TV show, it's a it's a book, it's an app, um, and they they came to you and I'm trying to decide, and they said you know I'm trying to decide, Krista, what what I want to do, you know where where I can um, get noticed, would, and they said I'm leaning towards creating an app. Would you try to um, discourage them or encourage them to? <laughs> to move towards an app or would you say, you know, maybe, maybe write a book or maybe look in a, in a different way? Well, if their main, um, I always ask, I, I do consulting for independent developers mm -hmm. and I always ask, what is your absolute main goal of your project Sure. and how are you going to support it? <laughs> <laughs> the funding part. But yeah. looking at the main goal, if the main goal is to provide a way for children to see representations of themselves and to um, experience diverse storytelling, I have to say that the trend towards storytelling apps is uh -huh. probably the one that I would direct people to most. There's a lot of competition in this space, right. but there's still so much room for um, unique ideas to create um, like play spaces, sandboxes, yeah. digital sandboxes for young people to tell their own stories. And if you go into any classroom um, in a, a school with, with even the smallest amount of diversity in their students, you will see when they make up their own stories. I know this when I go to my child's school and they right. have all stories up on the wall, that you see so much diversity in the kinds of storytelling that children initiate on their own. Sure. And when we make them the storytellers, I think we also empower them to um, that sharing of their own story empowers them. And, and it provides a really unique learning opportunity for them. Absolutely. 
I hope that there would be a way for kids to self-publish these stories and share them into a wider audience, and that might be the direction I would I would encourage an app developer to go into. Right, is to provide sort of a platform and sort of maybe a a way for kids to to tell these stories in a safe place, but to share them with the world. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right. So independent app developers who are listening, you have your marching orders. So um, Carissa knows. But thank you so much, Chris. I, re- I really appreciate your time. Um, and I will I will definitely link to your piece um, that uh, on uh, Digital Media Diet, but also um, the training documents that you mentioned. I'd, I'd love to post the, uh, the special needs one as well that you mentioned. That yeah, be awesome. I'll be sure and send that to you. It was my pleasure to talk with you. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. You too. All right. That was awesome.